Welcome to Product Stories, where we explore how founders build successful software products. This is a podcast about product management, development, remote work, and everything else non-technical as well as technical founders need to know to launch and scale software products. Today's guest is Kyle Racky, co-founder of Proposify, who started his product within his marketing agency uh, quite a while ago already and grew it to uh, a SaaS company of uh, almost 100 people now. Uh, welcome to the show, Kyle. Great to have you. Hey, Victor. Thanks for having me. Uh, so uh, 95 people, that's a LinkedIn count, but not everybody has LinkedIn. Have you have you passed 100 people yet? Uh, that's a good question. I'll have to check our HR software and see where we're at, but I, but I believe it's a, around the 100 uh, person mark. If you count, we've got a few co-op students too, so uh, I think we're around there. Nice. That's a, that's a pretty, pretty big mark. Uh, would you like to tell everybody a bit about the product? and what it does? Absolutely. So it, it started as a um, essentially scratching my own itch with with proposals and, and working in agencies where, you know, you want your proposal to look fantastic, but the actual process of getting proposals made efficiently and quickly is really painful and really disorganized. So it kind of started there and, and kind of where we're at now as a company is um, Proposify helps sales leaders in scaling sales teams essentially get control over their closing process. So a lot of teams will have CRM and sophisticated upfront sales and marketing tools and lead gen and lead qualification tools. But often when you get kind of to the end of a sales cycle, there's not a whole lot of process often. And what we often find is sales reps are kind of doing their own thing, sending their own PowerPoint or PDF or Word docs to essentially put contracts or proposals in front of clients. And so the sales leaders have very little visibility into what's going on. Often brand standards aren't being met or there's out of date content or the pricing is wrong or they're using a term, uh, you know, they're, they're updating terms. They're not really allowed to, to sort of present to the customer. So this lack of control, lack of consistency is essentially what Proposify solves. So I understand right now the target audience is more professional sales teams, right? Uh, did that start this way in the early days? It started with small um, agencies, really, because that was the the market that we knew that that we came from. So we we knew them well, and uh, you and I actually met on uh, our first podcast that we put together called "Agencies Drinking Beer," which was uh, which was fun to do for a while. But then, as as the company grew, I think we we realized that there's a much bigger opportunity when you move up market into kind of the mid market and enterprise, and that's where there's a lot of pain and not a whole lot of innovation happening currently. So we've been pivoting for the last several years to, to move up market and to sell to those bigger teams where there's more more pain and, uh, and where there's more like steady, consistent use of uh, a product like this versus sort of the sporadic usage of, of very small customers. And, and that makes sense. And that's how you, how you, how you evolve into, into a bigger company, I guess. But at the beginning, as you said, it was scratching your own itch. So um, you were running an agency back in the days, uh, as I remember, and uh, you wanted to solve that problem for yourself. How did you decide to actually build something in-house? It was a really long, slow process to actually get the product made. I think I had the idea as far back as around 2006 when I was still even employed at an agency before I even went out and started my own. So I had in my 
basement one night just kind of for fun thought about hey it'd be cool to have like a proposal tool um you know sort of like a base camp but for proposals that was that was where i started is the idea and i wanted all the functionality of like indesign for making you know the proposal look great and not just be kind of a, a a word document or a quote so i kind of mocked up like what a wireframe of the app could look like but I sat on that for quite a few years, started my agency. We, you know, a lot of learnings and lessons in, in business just from doing that. But then as we got about four or five years into the company, my co-founder and I really wanted to migrate towards products. And we had tried a few ideas um, for SaaS. Proposal software was kind of one of the, the ideas in the mix that we tried out. But as we actually got out and started, you know, verifying the pain in the market and showing it to people, uh, we found that it resonated strongly. There was a huge need for this um, type of product. And so that's where that, that gave us the first evidence that maybe this is an idea we should pursue. And then over the course of, you know, several years, we, uh, you know, got some funding to hire a developer in-house to start building out the product and then eventually migrated away from the agency and sold it off. So uh, you actually you actually went out for funding. That wasn't uh, a cash flow thing from within the agency. And um, how, how many people do that, I, I, I think, is that they just uh, set aside a few developer hours from their existing projects or whenever uh, a developer is idle, they will use them. Uh, which often results in, well, the product never getting done, essentially, right? Uh, so you, you really went all in, you, you, you got funding, and you, so you, you separated that pretty early on. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we had fallen into that trap ourselves, but I had heard other lessons about that. And so I was pretty aware that that was a, a risk to this, pro this product ever getting off the ground. Because you're right, it's if you just leave it to when it, you know treat it like a project in your agency and have developers work on it sporadically, you're you're going to be sit you know looking back ten years later without a product still and just wondering you know where it is. So so yeah, you really have to. For us, we had to have a, de a developer that was hired specifically for this product, and that developer was essentially not working on any client work he was completely separate from the agency. And that was how we were able to get it off the ground. Now, if we were a more profitable agency, we would have been able to just self-fund this. But um, but thankfully, where we live, there happened to be government programs, grant programs that we were able to tap into to help uh, cover the cost, or at least some of the cost of the developer. That's interesting. And how did you decide on the early MVP feature set? Was that also scratch your own itch or was there any customer or early, early customer development insight? I didn't approach customer development the way I would today, but essentially we showed the solution or we showed kind of the, the prototype to, uh, to a couple agencies around town. And, you know, I gathered a list of, uh, of people who were interested in the product, had a landing page. Um, I started with that and then the developer that we hired was able to come in and within about three months, he had a, you know, an MVP ready to, to start um, bringing customers into and using it. And, and, you know, the product was terrible. It was uh, very early stage, very, very rudimentary, but it was a start and it gave us that, that, that starting point. This would have been around April, 2013 to just, 
invite some people in, have them tinker around. Most of them left immediately and never used it. And then it was, you know, probing and asking why and trying to figure it out. So it took about probably a year and a half before uh, of just constantly iterating and, and talking to customers, pushing updates, talking to customers. And just that, that whole process was about a year and a half before we started to really find some, some traction and people were really enjoying what we were, what we were building. That's super interesting. Uh, and how did you continue developing that? How did you, so when you, when you saw some more traction, some more users signing up, uh, did that already become profitable or did you seek more funding? How did you scale from there? Cause product market fit doesn't always mean we have enough money to build out entire dev team, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we were able to raise a, a seed, <clears throat> pardon me, a seed fund in um, what would have been around May 2014. We raised 250000 from a, a local uh, VC called Innovacore. So they were able to sort of give us that cushion and that runway where Kevin and I could step out of the agency, you know, afford to live essentially with Jonathan, our developer. We were able to hire one more developer. And that gave us that little bit of runway to just keep going with what we what we had which was you know we had about 10 or so paying customers when we raised the money nothing you know no serious mrr happening but uh but the investor believed in the problem we were solving our ability to execute on it and so it probably took about maybe four to four months longer after we raised the money until we actually started to really see that uptick in not only customers signing up which was never a problem it wasn't hard to get people into a trial it was always hard to get people to use it and then pay at the end of their trial. And we started to crack that around October of 2014. And uh, moving forward, you, you see that, you see that massive uptick, you, you start scaling, you start growing, uh, people start, well, paying and sticking around. Um, fast forward to, well, today, uh, what's what's your what's your team set up now? How many people are in product? How how big is that entire department, so to speak? So we have a, we have currently four product teams or squads we call them, and then outside of that, you know, we have your um, directors of engineering, DevOps, um, managers, that kind of thing. So all in all, we've got probably about 50, 40 to fifty people in product dev QA. Um, and the support roles around that DevOps and so forth. That's how it's set up today. And then essentially those four product teams would involve a product manager, designer, um, about five engineers and two QA. And those are the teams that go and sort of solve specific verticals within the product, like integrations or the document editor. So they're, they're very focused on certain parts of the application or does that change around? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're this. This is always changing. Like, whatever process we have today, it's 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 probably going to change in two months to something different. So we're just always evolving it. But as it stands today, yeah, I mean, the the teams, um, we aim to have a broad context and understanding of how customers use the product, so that there isn't just you know a team that's in a silo and all they know is one part of the app and nothing else. But generally speaking, you know, a team that's focused on integrations is going to have more bench strength around around uh, you know backend stuff and API. Whereas a team who's in the editor doing kind of like more front end type of stuff, they're going to be stronger in 
JavaScript and all the other uh, sort of more front end technologies. And uh, where are you guys located? Are you all in house? We aren't. Um, we are mostly based out of uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia here on the east coast of Canada. But uh, but over the last couple of years, and especially it's been accelerated with COVID, we've, we've been expanding. Uh, about a year ago, we hired our first true international hire, Andre. He, uh, he's based out of the Philippines, and he's our customer success, one of our customer success uh, representatives who's able to sort of tackle the, the time zones on the other side of the world, especially our, our Australian customer base. Um, and then ever since then, we've been um, hiring some people out of the US, some people out of Brazil, actually. Um, we've got a few, a few people spread out. Uh, that's interesting. How, how, how is your experience here? Because I remember, I mean, you've been around for a while and you said a year ago, you've hired your first international hire. Um, what was your experience? Um, have you ever worked with remote people before or external, uh, service providers? Um, what was your experience here? Yeah. I mean, over the, you know, the course of 10 or 13 years or however long I was in the, the sort of design and tech business. Um, yeah, we've, we've worked with contractors overseas. We've, uh, I mean, we've worked with you and on, uh, on getting some help. I think when we were looking at different product initiatives, mobile and experimenting with different parts of the product. So we've always had that. I mean, it's a little bit different though, hiring like a contractor and hiring somebody who's at least treated, if not technically on paper, in, in the cultural aspect, they're treated like an in-house employee. They're on a team, they have one-on-ones and all that kind of thing. So yeah, that that I think we're fairly new to. I mean, a couple of years ago, we did actually have a sales rep out of the US. I didn't really count that as an international hire because we sort of, we tend to think of Canada and the US as being pretty well the same thing. It doesn't feel international, but yeah, like the first like really far away hire was Andre over in the Philippines. Interesting. And, um, what do you, what do you think, uh, is, is that with, with COVID, I guess everybody's working from home right now? Well, yeah, we are actually all working from home. We have an office here in Halifax, so people are still free to use it. We actually don't have, um, too many cases here in Nova Scotia. Um, we're, we're, um, one of the safest places currently in the world from COVID. Uh, I think it was like a New York Times article recently that listed Nova Scotia as the safest place in North America or something like that. We just have very few cases. We were down to zero for many months um, in the fall, and then we sort of had a, a bit of an uptick, but we're still around 20 or so active cases in the whole province. So with that, you know, we have an office, people mostly work from home, but, you know, we're able to have, if your team needs to have an offsite or if the, you know, executive team meets to, to sort of, I don't know, go over quarterly plans or something, we, we do uh, hang out in the office. I would definitely say COVID accelerated the remote hiring because prior to that, we had actually established a pretty, pretty interesting um, recruitment channel out of Brazil. We had hired about six or so talented engineers who came up from Sao Paulo and we were actually able to use a government program to fast track their immigration. So they're all living here. Um, cause a lot of them wanted to get out of, you know, the country that they were, that they were living in. And, uh, we, we were sort of on track for that, but then COVID hit. So then the people that we wanted to hire down there, we just couldn't get them up here. So some are working out of Brazil temporarily until we're able to get them over here. And then, you know, as it happened, we just ended up hiring some 
developers who were, you know, one is in Mexico, one in a couple are in the US and, and there's no plans for them to move here. Got it. Would you say that that everybody or most people working from home kind of enabled that situation? Or would you say it's just as easy if everybody was in office with a few people scattered around? I, you know, I personally don't. I, th I think remote has pros and cons. And the feeling and the the collaboration of people sitting around physically a you know, a table with their laptops, you know, working on a, a shared challenge or problem, having a whiteboard to just quickly discuss and brainstorm ideas. Like I think we, we use technology to try to get as close to that as possible. We have Zoom, we have Slack, we have, you know, digital whiteboards, but it never really replaces the in-person feel. And, you know, so I think the, you know, the pros of remote obviously is that you can open up your talent pool and people you know, talented people from anywhere in the world can work for your company. Um, what you give away is that is that really close collaborative aspect of, of work. And I think we're still like probably a lot of people just trying to figure out how to get better at that. Yeah, there's, um, there's very interesting companies, right, who, who really succeeded that like 37 Sigma, which is a classic, of course, um, although they're, they're smaller than you guys, to be to be fair, right there, yeah. I think, uh, just about well, less than 50 people, I believe. Um, but then again, yeah. automatic is like 12, 1200 people who are fully remote, which is insane. Yeah, I, you know, it, it can definitely be done. And I think even 37 signals, they, they still do some in-person stuff. I believe they still have an oh, office sure. in Chicago for, for meeting and whatnot. Also, they've always been a bit of a, a rare, you know, unicorn in their own right where, you know, they're very much like anti-growth and anti-moving fast. They're all kind of like, take your time, you know, everybody just hire smart people who want to work alone and don't need a whole bunch of management and, and talking and collaboration and all that. So that works for them. I don't think that works for most companies. Yeah, no, I would agree. Everybody needs to find their own pace here. Um, moving, moving on to more of the product development side, how it's currently happening. Um, and I know you have a, you have a great product manager, uh, Ricky, uh, well, one of your product, is he head of, head of product? He's Not a senior sure. uh, product. Yeah. Manager, senior yeah. product manager is because he's, he's the person that I know within your company. Um, do you, do you, uh, how do you decide which features to build? Because I assume at that stage, everybody has an idea and every customer is submitting requests and there's probably a lot of features to choose from. Yeah. This is a really interesting topic um, and a lot we could talk about. You know, the the actual team structure and the way we have it now where there's a PM in every squad. So we have four PMs with Ricky being the most senior. Um, that's the way it's set up and the way that we're tackling roadmap. I think roadmap is a general interesting topic on its own. We've made a recent decision to essentially kill the roadmap. And that initially sounds quite scary to most people, especially sales and customer success and marketing who always want to have this Gantt chart somewhere that, that shows you when, when all the features are going to launch. But the decision to, to essentially kill that mindset of roadmaps came from reading the book inspired by Marty Kagan, which is, uh, 
huge book recommendation for those who who want to know how fast moving product teams operate at scale. It's got a lot of great tips in there. And and so the idea is essentially that what we've what we've migrated towards is OKRs. So um, for those who aren't familiar, objectives and key results, where you kind of focus on outcomes versus output, and then a t- individual teams set their own um, outcomes or their own objectives, and then they the key results are how you measure that objective. How do you know you've gotten there? And it's a very different way of thinking because most teams and most companies focus on output. Management gets together and decides what features are most important. They feed it down to the teams, and then the teams are expected to just take take their tasks and get them done. The OKR model is is very interesting and and very kind of a mix between top down and bottom up. So we've we've migrated to that, and now that teams have their OKRs set, the OKRs are essentially what what customer problems they're aiming to solve, and all of that is based on the, the the target market that we're going after. And if we flip that that mindset and go after talking about customer problem, business outcome, then the feature really is not, you know, we don't need a roadmap to tell people what feature is going to launch when, because A, it's going to be wrong. Whatever we put down, whatever date we put down is going to be a lie. We're basically just throwing darts at the wall and hoping and praying that we hit them. It gives the, 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 people from outside the product team, some perspective into, okay, we know there's this team over here and they're solving this customer problem. Let's just say it's around um, trust and reliability in the editor. So now we don't necessarily need to say, well, okay, well, there's a thing about page flow and there's a thing about, you know, pricing tables or whatever feature set is within that editor. We know that at the end of the quarter, this team wants to make the editor more reliable and trustworthy as they get in and they start experimenting and running discovery and testing prototypes, they're going to find what are the right features to build or the right usability improvements to make. Um, so that, you know, at the end of the quarter, they can say, okay, we've achieved a measurable improvement to this outcome. So that's, that's how we think about roadmap and features. And that makes sense because in the end, what, what counts is not the feature. What counts is that customer problem being solved. Um, so what and again, I'll Ms. just add yeah. sorry, I'll just add that in order to, to to for that to work, the product managers have to be in very closely in touch with customers. Because if they're just guessing or they're just relying on sales or customer success to tell them about customer problems, there's always going to be that divide, that layer in between, that interpretation or bias. The only way for this to work is that the product teams are deeply engaged with customers, especially their target customer, their, their ICPs, and they're being, they're able to show them ideas in the early stages and ask about their, their problems and ask about their current workarounds and deeply understand it. Because then when they've tested their, their prototypes, their ideas, and they've gotten them to a delivery stage then they're able to say, okay, we've achieved this measurable outcome. Now sales, sales don't care. As long as their deals aren't being blocked, sales really don't care what feature gets built. But oftentimes they resort to telling product what to build because they feel like their, their deals keep getting disqualified because of lack of features. If their d- deals aren't getting disqualified, if their pipeline's being opened up, they're happy. And that's a great point, um, especially on the product managers being in touch with customers. How do you how do you ensure that on scale? What what process do you have internally? There's a lot of tactical things that you can that you can do. 
Um, I'd say like the first thing is you have to make sure that customer success and product have, have a good relationship and they trust each other because um, if they don't, customer success can get very possessive over their, their relationships, especially the larger customers. Um, they want to make sure that, that, you know, product isn't getting in there and sort of maybe taking an at-risk account and making it worse. So you have to kind of open up those lines of communications. But from a tactical level, there's, there's a few things that we're trying. Um, we're actually in the process now of moving over NPS survey follow-ups from CSMs to product managers. So the idea, we now have, have a, a shared calendar for the product managers. So when somebody, especially the target segment that we're, we're focusing on as a customer base, when they fill out an NPS and it's less than glowing, you know, it's less than eight, let's say, they'll actually get an email inviting them to a call with a product manager to talk through how we can make the product better. And they'll just have a link to the shared calendar. So then the idea is that your product managers show up on Monday morning and they see their, their, uh, their slots are already filled with customer calls. That just ensures that they're regularly talking to customers across the broad spectrum of the product. And then as they dig into, say, a specific problem they're trying to solve, they can go into Gainsight, Salesforce, all the tools that we use that have you know, tags and, and sort of conversations linked. And they can read through those conversations and reach out to specific customers who maybe have talked about this one problem before and invite them to have a call. Do you use any specific uh, in-product analytics tools? We, I mean, we use a number of them. Um, primarily segment is, is what's used. And then there's different tools like mode and heap and whatnot that we can run different types of reports on. Um, I'd say probably the most useful is Gainsight and PX currently, because then that gives us the really the one central place for product managers to go so they can see not only the conversations between the CSM and the account, but also like what is their NPS and what is their, um, you know, MRR group, uh, what kind of features are they using? What do they have turned on in their account? All that information is in, is in Gainsight. And that's very interesting. So as I understand the, the development process or the overall decision-making process is from setting objectives and, uh, and, 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 and key results within, within the teams, they themselves understand how to tackle that problem and, and reach that goal. And, uh, if you move one level lower into actual, well, tasks, issues, concrete, well, at that point you, you do get into concrete features and, and issues. Uh, do you, do you work in sprints? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, so the actual development process is, is agile. And I think, you know, it's always debatable how agile, but I think the goal is to get as agile as possible so that, you know, you've got your sprint planning, your retros, your sprint goals. Um, you know, there's daily standups with the scrum master, all that kind of stuff is in place. But essentially on the product side, they're living most of their time in, in discovery mode. So they're kind of always talking to customers, always showing them ideas, always validating assumptions, involving their team in those conversations, you know, inviting them to the calls and whatnot. But then essentially when, the, when it's ready to build, like, okay, we've taken this thing, we understand the customer problem, we know they're going to buy it or they value the solution. We know there's, there's, there's no serious risks to the business. The developers feel comfortable about the technical approach. They've maybe validated some technical uncertainties up front. 
Um, we've actually even tested the prototype, so we know customers can figure it out. It's it's user friendly. Well, then at that point, it's ready for delivery mode, where it's like the sprint planning. How are we gonna like? What's the end goal look like? But then, what are the sprints along the way where we're gonna measure something small, contained to production, make sure that it plays well with the other code so that it's stable on the release and we're not just waiting at the end of two months and releasing this big mammoth up on staging and finding all kinds of stability issues. And and you mentioned prototypes to test before you even develop. Uh, what do you use for prototyping? How'd you do those? Every, I think prototypes, you know, it's a really interesting question because even the team we've been talking about this, this lately is that prototype can mean many different things and everybody has their own interpretation. The way I like to think about it is like prototypes is your tool tool belt and you've got many different tools in there and it's about kind of picking the right one for the job. So if you're really concerned at the moment with just like, hey, do customers even care about this thing that we're trying to build? You know, your prototype could be Keynote. It could be a sketch on paper. It could be a wireframe from, you know, Envision has that freehand tool. Lots of different ways to just get some, you know, boxes, sketched boxes in front of a customer to just say like, this is what we're thinking. Do you think we're on the right track? Would you use this thing? But then when you get into like usability, then you probably want sort of a clickable uh, prototype using Envision or um, Marvel is what all the, the cool kids are using, I guess now. But then you can also get into technical prototypes. So, you know, those ones obviously take longer to build and you want to be judicious about how you use development resources. But if the developers are like, look, we've never even looked at this type of technology before. We're not going to, don't ask us for story points, you know, or t-shirt sizes when we have, we have no idea what we're even building, then, you know, take a couple of days and just code, throw away code that you're, you know, you don't, this isn't an actual production ready product we're trying to build. We're just trying to validate assumptions and, and see how it works so that the developers can go, oh, okay, we went down a few roads that were like false starts, but I think we have a pretty clear idea of how we would build this and how long it would take. Tons of, so every different tool for the job. Maybe even uh, as a proof of concept, once you, once you put developers on it, right? Is that like, uh, what kind of roadblocks do we have on the technical side is probably where you would throw developers at a prototype, an API you've never integrated before, a technology you've never used, right? That's probably... Um, the best use of their time here. Um, well, and, and also that, architecture yeah. panel. That's something that it got established within the last 12 months is our engineering team has an architecture panel. So if there is something, if there's an idea that we want to test out, the the engineer on the team can look at it and say, this this has major implications to our whole, how we, you know, how we build things. I'm going to take this to the to the panel and sort of, you know, there's that process in place so that the engineering panel or the architecture panel can look at it and come up with a proposed approach to how to actually build build the over, the underlying arch architecture behind it. So that's one of the ways too that we can solve that. Do you have something like that for design as well? How do you how do you decide on the on the actual uh, UI design, or is that is it not that important because at that point you already have the wireframes and everything? figure it out and you have a brand guide of course or how does that play in there well the designer on the squad would primarily be tasked with coming up with a visual solution to the problem so you know in most cases there you know you can leave it to the squad to figure out how that design is going to work and the designer is going to 
collaborate and work with other designers across the squad to to sort of you know show them ideas and get feedback and whatnot um but we are actually in the process of hiring a design director which uh you know that's that's sort of the goal of that hire is that the person is going to come in and help establish that cohesive higher level plan behind the product design that makes sense um and now is the last question really uh just out of interest uh to see what's out there and what's being used what's the tech stack behind your product so we are uh we are still on php for the back end we use code igniter as the framework um and we use essentially javascript you know, for most of the front end uh there's a custom written framework that was built for that but uh but yeah i mean other than that it's like the typical kind of stuff, Bootstrap and jQuery for certain things. We use um, uh, a lot of the the work lately has been on the Salesforce side. So we have an AppX developer who writes in Java and builds within that um, Salesforce App Exchange sort of framework. But um, yeah, I think where the dev team is going is more of like the API first approach. Um, I think there's probably plans to move out of Code Igniter to something else. And I think I think the the real future of where they want to take things is with microservices and have a very uh, you know very segmented architecture. But I'm I'm sort of speaking out of turn now because that's that's not my domain of expertise. Of course, of course. Uh, however, since you've been around for ten years now, and um, not many SaaS applications actually have had a product this long on the market. Uh, do you feel feedback from the engineering team that there's something getting too old or that some technologies are, are not up to date anymore? Or even maybe uh, since we have a market that we have that some engineers don't want to work on a 10-year-old code base or anything like that? I, you know, the way I've seen it evolve is that, and it's almost kind of the mark of a more uh, established senior engineering leader, like a VP or a, you know a CTO, is that when you're when developers are less experienced, I find them often wanting to go the route of rebuild and and retool, and especially use the latest greatest framework. But I think as as you see the more seasoned uh, engineering leaders grow and emerge, it's much more about iterative improvement, and we kind of liken it to like rebuilding the foundation of the house while there's a party going on and not interrupting the party because you know the last thing that anybody wants to do is tear down and rebuild from scratch and then deal with migrations and we've been down those roads before and we've made a lot of fumbles but essentially it, it always sounds great on paper oh it's just easier to start over again with a whole new framework and like the world's your oyster you can do whatever you want you're not you know you're not hampered by legacy but in practice, it always turns into a, a shit show. <laughs> awesome. And on that note, what's what's coming next for Proposify? What's the next big thing? I think the the you know in terms of the product where we're getting with it is we're we're very focused around um, helping sales leaders and sales teams at SaaS, especially sales tech companies. And to do that, we, we, we're working towards building an extremely tight um, Salesforce integration with managed package and other integrations with tool with HubSpot primarily. Um, and then, you know, sort of the, the core web app is just going way more down the road of, um, you know, 
control and visibility into the sales process. There's a really cool thing we're experimenting with now, which hasn't been announced or anything, but it's essentially like a real-time analytics engine so that you could actually watch a replay of somebody use, uh, reading your proposal, which, uh, you know, the people we've shown it to are pretty uh, pretty excited about. You know, a lot of tools like ours, our competitors and, and us ourselves, will show you the sections that customers view and how long they, they're on it. But being able to actually see a visual replay of their session um, which is actually not even recording anyone's screen. It's just it's just recreating it all from the data is uh, is kind of a cool experiment. So it's like a hot jar for proposals. Exactly. Nice. Awesome. So uh, where can people find out more about you and connect? Uh, I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. If they look at Kyle Racky, R-A-C-K-I, um, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Otherwise, the uh, the product is Proposify. Dot com so people can check that out if they're interested you got the dot com as of lately or it's been a while already probably a couple uh maybe two or three years we had the dot com i finally tracked down the owner and uh <laughs> negotiated and we got it awesome uh well thank you so much for being on here i think there was a ton of uh useful useful tips and advice on really scaling a company um on the product side um thanks for being on the show my pleasure Vic. thanks for having me this show is brought to you by TrustShoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one -on -one guidance all the way, so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.